Waco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report and 2024. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly and I'm Cynthia Roberts. Later in the program, environmental correspondent Zero Rose speaks with a homesteader and sustainability educator from Spencer, Indiana, about her life journey in academia and as a nature lover from a young age. And now for your environmental reports. The New York Times reports that the United States and the state of California have reached an agreement with the truck engine manufacturer Cummins. The agreement is on a $1.6 billion penalty to settle claims that the company violated the Clean Air Act by installing devices to defeat emissions controls on hundreds of thousands of engines, the Justice Department announced last Friday. The penalty would be the largest ever under the Clean Air Act and the second largest ever environmental penalty in the United States. Defeat devices are parts or software that bypass, defeat, or render inoperative emissions controls like pollution sensors and onboard computers. They allow vehicles to pass emissions inspections while still emitting, while still emitting high levels of smog-causing pollutants such as nitrogen oxide, which is linked to asthma and other respiratory illnesses. The Justice Department has accused the company of installing defeat devices on 630,000 630, <laughs> model year 2013 to 2019 Ram 250 and 350 pickup truck engines. The company is also alleged to have secretly installed auxiliary emissions control devices on 330,000 model year 2019 to 2023 Ram 2,500 and 3,500 pickup truck engines. Quote, violations of our environmental laws have a tangible impact. They inflict real harm on people in communities across the country, end quote. Attorney General Merrick Garland said in a statement, quote, this historic agreement should make clear that the Justice Department will be aggressive in its efforts to hold accountable those who seek to profit at the expense of people's health and safety. End quote. Indiana has over 2,300 megawatts of wind capacity and is 12th in the U.S. for the number of wind turbines, which is 1,264. In 2019, wind generated 6% of electricity in Indiana. Over 1,100 megawatts of new wind projects are in development or construction. Wind power in 2023 now accounts for 9% of electric power in Indiana. 
With Gus from Lake Michigan and a strategic position between two electric grids, Indiana is one of the best states in the country for building wind turbines, experts say. And as a result, the industry is growing. Wind energy also brings considerable economic growth to the states and localities that host projects. Total wind energy investment in Indiana to date is over 6.8 billion dollars. American Clean Power also estimates annual state and local tax payments of $23.4 million and annual land lease payments of $22 million. Typically, new construction yields about $5,000 per year per wind turbine in the landowner. Southern Indiana, on the other hand, is not a great place for wind turbines because there isn't enough wind. Climate Wire reported that Minnesota Democrats, newly in control of the state government, began 2023 by enacting a clean electricity standard. Michigan lawmakers followed suit months later as one of their final acts before gaveling out for the year. The two laws were bookends to a year of climate action, experts say, as Democratic state officials advanced major policies that climate hawks could once only dream of. State officials committed serious money and political capital to cleaning up the electricity sector, the backbone of the energy transition, while also boosting electric vehicles, restricting gas in new buildings, and building factories to manufacture batteries and other clean technology. Climate activists hope such actions ripple out nationwide as the U.S. lags in its goal of having, halving (laughs) emissions by 2030. The best we can say for Indiana is that the state verified its, quote, coal forever stance. The New York Times reports that this past summer was the Arctic's warmest on record, and it was at lower latitudes. But above the Arctic Circle, temperatures are rising four times as fast as they are elsewhere. The past year overall was the sixth warmest year the Arctic had experienced since reliable records began in 1900, according to the 18th Annual Assessment of the Region, published by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The hottest spots on the Arctic map varied throughout the year. At the beginning of the year, temperatures over the Barents Sea, north of Norway and Russia, were as much as 5 degrees Celsius, or 9 degrees Fahrenheit, above the 1991-2020 average. In the spring, temperatures were also about 5 degrees Celsius hotter than average in northwest Canada. Hotter air temperatures dry out vegetation and soil, priming the pump for wildfires to burn more easily. This year, during Canada's worst wildfire season on record, fires burned more than 10 million acres in the Northwest Territories. More than two-thirds of the territory's population of 46,000 people had to be evacuated at various points, and smoke from the fires reached millions more people, reducing air quality as far as the southern United States. This year, for the first time, the Arctic Report Card includes weather and climate observations from the Alaska Arctic Observatory and Knowledge Hub, a network of Inuit, Inuit observers living on Alaska's coast. The observers reported that multiple powerful storms hit their communities last year. A lack of sea ice exposed the coast, including roads, buildings, community ice cellars, and historic landmarks to more damage from flooding and erosion. And now, part one of a conversation between Zero Rose and Elia Kuthnan 
a sustainability educator and homesteader from Owen County, about her formative years, education, and passion for environmental and social justice. This evening, we're speaking with Aaliyah Kuthan. She's a gardener turned homesteader and a sustainability educator, and has had a range of life experiences that I think you'll find interesting and inspiring in various ways. I guess we should start with, if you want to start with your kind of upbringing and where you where you kind of got your orientation to be concerned about, you know, things to do with broader systems, the earth and all that, and social injustice and that sort of thing. So why don't you go ahead and just start wherever you want to with kind of how you came into your perspective that you're now, you know, acting on. Okay. Um, hi, first of all. <laughs> it's good to be here. Um, I'm from Indiana. I'm a Hoosier, born and bred. I've lived in other places in my life. Uh, but I was born in Indianapolis, and at a very early age, as a baby, I, I moved to Clay County and lived with my grandparents and my mother on my grandpa's old um, uh, homestead. And he had, at one point, he had a cow, and they had uh, a horse, and they had gardens, and the neighbor next door had an extensive garden, and I grew up around that. Uh, as a child, I used to climb a, an overgrown honeysuckle bush that had elevated to tree status. It was huge, and it had numerous branches that I could sit on, and I'd climb to the you know, as high up as I could climb in that and just sit there for hours with the honeybees and enjoy my time outdoors. You know, I grew up as a child doing doing things outdoors all the time. You know, back in the 60s, that's what kids did. You know, Grandma didn't want me underfoot, I'm sure, all of the time. So Grandpa would go outdoors with me and sit under the birch tree and watch me play. Or he'd, he'd, at the age of nine or eight, I was painting the outbuildings, and he'd show me how to paint. I was up on a ladder at the age of eight you know, painting buildings, but outdoors constantly. I used to write poetry as a teenager, and I'd sit outside in the backyard on a, a big rock that was basically a tombstone from some of my grandma's dogs that she had raised. Uh, she used to raise Cocker Spaniels back in the, I don't know, 1930s or 40s, way before I came along. I'd sit on that big stone and watch the sun go down after school in the evening and write poetry in the middle of winter. You know, just loved being outdoors. In my 20s, I moved to Chicago, my early 20s. I moved to Chicago when I was 21, 22 years old. And by the time I was 26, I was working for Greenpeace, knocking on doors out in the Chicago suburbs for Greenpeace Great Lakes. And we had a peace garden that we put up near, not far from the lakefront um, in Newtown, you know up by North Clark, off Clark, you know, Cabrini Green region area of Chicago. There's a bike trail that goes there now, and there's a little water feature, and it, it was really nice. We had a little rock rock garden that allowed water to flow over it, you know, when, I, when we first built it back in 1986, I think it was. But uh, it's still there, and I was really surprised that that was still there. Uh, I was an avid recycler all through my 20s, uh, up until today. You know, I'm 64. I still recycle. I've been recycling forever. 
in the 1990s, I lived in, I'm still living in Chicago in 91, and I moved back to Clay County uh, with my husband and uh, daughters, and um, I lived there for a while. We used to go to state parks a lot. We went camping, took my kids camping, and we got divorced, and I moved up to, uh, by 19, no, 2001, I moved to South Dakota. Lived in Bloomington for a while. Uh, right around 1999, 2000, somewhere in there, for about a year with my two daughter, youngest daughters. And um, I moved to South Dakota, in the western part of South Dakota by the Black Hills. And I was there for nine years. I was in Chicago eight years. I was in South Dakota nine years. Uh, there, I was introdu introduced to the concept of peak oil. And that opened up a whole new vision for me. Uh, I was also uh, a writer for the Native Sun. I was a member of the Clean Water Alliance. I was a member of uh, uh, social justice groups that um, worked on Native American uh, advocacy um, and and community um, um, decision making. Uh, it was very um, interconnected. You know, pe people were more uh, able to discuss what they wanted to talk about at these meetings. It was like a circular format, if you know what I mean, where everyone was equal and everyone had an equal say and uh, participated in uh, decision-making about the Native American issues that were um, problematic in Rapid City, and there were quite a few. Uh, water was an issue, a big issue. Racism was a big issue, and we dealt with that uh, at, this, at these meetings. Uh, the Clean Water Alliance, I'm still active in that to a certain extent, not, you know, from a distance. Uh, mostly I just keep up with it. I follow them on Facebook. I get their emails. I'm still friends with some of the people who I was close to when I was a member and and, and more active as an advocate. But they uh, were and are active in preventing mining companies from being aggressive aggressively trying to take Native American lands and get permits to, to mine on these lands. And this is an ongoing thing. This is a, a thing that's systemic throughout the United States where you have oil and gas companies um, seeking permits and, and other mining companies, gold, copper, you name it, uh, lithium, um, all kinds of different different toxic <laughs> substances going to places that are poor, impoverished, or, or reservation lands or trust lands that aren't on the reservation but are considered trust lands for Native Americans. And getting these companies are getting permits to mine and excavate and extract minerals, completely destroying whatever is in their path. And nine times out of ten, they do not go back and recap those uranium holes. They do not go back and reclaim the mines that they, you know, where they've devastated the environment. At this time, 
in South Dakota, I also listened to a presentation by a professor at the uh, South Dakota State University in Spearfish, SDU, SDSU, something like that. Anyway, I forgot, but <clears throat> since Spearfish, South Dakota. And he came to Rapid City to the library and gave a presentation about peak oil and about um, the transition away from fossil fuel use. And that's when I first heard the word sustainability. It wasn't until years later, um, 2000, okay, 2004, I started back to college, uh, the School of Mines and Technology, <laughs> oddly enough, ironically, um, started doing some basic pre-engineering courses and uh, mechanical engineering courses. I finished my, my bachelor's degree, however, at uh, Oglala Lakota College, transferred all my credits, was totally disillusioned by life for a while, transferred all my credits to Oglala Lakota College, finished my bachelor's degree there. Then I did my master's degree, started it in South Dakota in 2010 at um, as, uh, let's say USD, University of South Dakota, which was in another town on the other side of South Dakota, on the east side of South Dakota, Vermilion in um, administration. I had been a bookkeeper for four years for my bread and butter. And so I was able to get a Master of Science um, grant or loan to go to school there. And I was accepted and it was great. You know, I finished, came back to Indiana, moved back here in 2011 and finished my master's degree by 2014, you know, something like that. Then I moved to Arizona and started a PhD in sustainability education. Um, I'd done my master's capstone in uh, recidivism and in, uh, for Native, Native American um, um, students, or not? I'm sorry, not recidivism. That was that was something else I did in South Dakota. <laughs> had to do with peace and justice, but retention, student retention of Native American students in the public school system in South Dakota. That was what I did my capstone on. And that's when I was, I started to really de dig deep into what the meaning of sustainability is. I want to talk about that because when I went to Arizona to Prescott College, I was really... Um, not just introduced to sustainability. I was immersed in it. It was amazing. The school there was a LEED certified uh, school. They had they had uh, solar panels across the building. Uh, the main main library, two dozen solar huge solar panels on that building that powered that building and uh, other buildings on the campus. I was able to live on campus and work there as a work-study job and go to school there my first year as a PhD student. I learned a remarkable amount of stuff when I was there about sustainability. And the, the main thing that I learned is that how little people know about what sustainability really is. And what makes an organization sustainable? What makes a decision sustainable? What makes any human activity sustainable? There's three main things. 
And briefly, if I could discuss that, would you be interested in hearing? Okay. Certainly. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a buzzword that is becoming kind of hollow of meaning anymore. Um, but yeah, it's clearly about how are we able to keep things going and, and not hit these endpoints and dead ends. Thank you. Um, you said it, it's a hollow buzzword now, and I think a lot of that is as a result of a misunderstanding of what it really means and the the bipartisan um, banter back and forth with with different phrases and words, and and how that can um, destroy uh, the ability to incorporate sustainability into our decision-making processes. Um, first of all, you, to be sustainable, you have to have three basic aspects uh, in, your, in your process. You have to consider the ecology, echoes, is a Greek word meaning home, you know, the ecology, the place where you live, uh, what is around you, your environment, uh, your ecosystem, where you are, you know. You also have to consider uh, the economy, another part of ECOS. Uh, how do you survive? How do you make your living? Uh, what is your sustenance? How do you... Uh, manage to, you know, pay your rent, how do you know, or buy your home or plant your crops. Um, then you have to consider the third part of sustainability is the social aspect, the cultural aspect. And those three, those three things overlap and intertwine. Without one, you don't have a sustainable system. Yeah, one thing I've I've said before is that the economy is a subset of the ecosystem. That if you don't have the ecosystem services, as they're now kind of called, of, you know, you're getting exact, you know, real services. Like if you, if you were having to buy it, you know, from some company, you'd be getting these ecosystem services. But if you don't have that baseline function, then your economic system can't function because it is just an aspect of that. And so real, real systems, real commodities of clean water, clean air, if you don't have your health, then you don't have anything else. Exactly. Yes. Um, to, to be a functional society, uh, we, ha we have to have... Uh, economic justice, we have to have ecological justice, and the word justice is where the social aspects come in. This is In Nature. This is Juliana Daly with In Nature, and today I am talking to you about the Indiana bat. The Indiana bat is a medium-sized mouse-eared bat native to North America. It lives primarily in southern and midwestern states and is listed as an endangered species. 
The Indiana bat is gray-black or chestnut in color and is between one and two inches long. The 2019 winter census estimate of the population was 537,297 bats occurring in 16 states. The current population has declined by half compared to when the species was listed as endangered. The reason it is endangered is due to human disturbance of caves that bats use for winter hibernating. Loss of summer habitat, pesticides, and the white-nose syndrome disease are other reasons they are declining. Bats are fascinating creatures. They are the only mammal capable of true flight, and they use sonar or echolocation to navigate through their environment and capture prey. All Indiana bats are insectivores, which means they eat insects. Although bats may be helpful to humans by consuming insects, some bats are infected with rabies and can transmit the disease to humans by biting, scratching, or through saliva contact. In the evening, bats emerge from their caves and flit through the air, diving for insects. They do make a soft chirp or clicking sound while hunting. You've been listening to In Nature, a production of WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I am Cynthia Roberts. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Brown County State Park will have their first winter hike series for 2024 to Kelp Village on Saturday, January 6th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. You will explore the old village where you will see foundations of old buildings, home sites, and more. The hike is around 1.5 round trip miles. Dress for the weather and meet at the Nature Center. Join the Sycamore Land Trust for our first week hike to the Bean Blossom Bottoms Nature Preserve on Sunday, January the 7th from 1 to 3 p.m. Registration is required at the Sycamore Land Trust website. Enjoy a winter exploration hike at the South Fork Robertson Cemetery area at Monroe Lake on Wednesday, January 10th from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. This is an off-trail hike through lesser-known areas of Monroe Lake. There is no set path and no toilet facilities. Sign up at bit.ly slash weh hyphen January 10, or I'm sorry, JAN 10 hyphen 2024. 
The Whooper Wednesdays will continue at Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area until February the 21st. Come to the Visitor Center on Wednesday, January the 10th at 8 a.m. to walk the property and see if you can spot some of the resident birds, including the endangered whooping crane. Make sure to dress for the weather. The Brown County State Park Winter Hike Series continues on um, into the new year with the boulder in the tree hike Saturday, January 13th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. This is your chance to see the boulder in the tree and try to figure out how it got there. Boots are essential for this hike. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eagle Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at, at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy. Today's news feature was produced by Cade Young and Noel Herhushki-Snyder. Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by Zero Rose. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Cade Young and Noel Herhushki-Snyder produced today's show. Brandon Blewett is our engineer. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I am Cynthia Roberts. And this is Eco Report. Thank you for listening. been listening to the eco report a volunteer powered production of community radio wfhb in bloomington indiana available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org eco report is your independent ecologically inspired news source for south central indiana bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear send your comments suggestions and story ideas directly to the eco report staff the email address is earth at wfhb.org that's earth at wfhb.org